Thank you for visiting Crossland Community Church. We are located in Terre Haute, Indiana. For more information, please visit us online at cocchurch.com. Let's listen to one of our Sunday morning messages. For ages. Is there right and wrong? Is there good and bad? And if there is, how do we know what they are? A new generation now grapples with these same questions. And how they answer them will shape the destiny of civilizations. What is truth? Perhaps the answer to this ancient question will be found in ancient words. How glad I am to see all of you back here. It's always that nerve-wracking thing. Are there going to be three people in the crowd and two of them be my grandparents? So it is, that's me again. I'm sorry. I should have learned after the first service. Am I okay? Should I not step this way? That's his fault in the back, the man that's raising his hand right now. Anyway, it is, uh, it's great to be here again this evening. This morning, this morning we tackled that question, the question of origins. What does the evidence say about uh, the design or the, the natural processes that brought about the universe? And we saw that clearly the evidence points in the direction of design. But just because we've established that the evidence points towards design doesn't have any bearing on who that designer is. We can, uh, there are deists in our, in our world today who believe that God started everything, wound it up like a clock, wandered off, and never had further relationship with humankind, that he doesn't govern it, that he's not involved intricately with, with man and his life. Is there truth or is there not truth? Now, this is a debate that rages in the United States today. This is a debate that rages in our culture and around the world. Is there truth, something that we can sink our teeth into and say, there's right about this, there's wrong about this, there's yes about this and no about this, so on and so forth. Is there an absolute truth? That's the big question that we tackle tonight in our second pillar. Now, just like a, a lot of these other questions, since men started thinking, we've grappled with the big questions of life, like uh, the one we talked about earlier today. How did we all get here? It doesn't matter who you are or where you're from. People grapple with these big questions. Carl Sagan, one of the biggest atheists the world has ever known. Carl Sagan, what did he do with his whole life? He spent his whole life out in the, in the American West, beaming up satellites into space, or the little uh, receivers, l listening for what? He was listening to see if there was intelligent life out there somewhere. Why? 
Carl Sagan's words, not mine. When we find out who they are, then we'll know who we are. Now, here's Carl Sagan, big leading atheist. What's he looking for? He's looking for meaning. Now, he's looking for it in the wrong place. He's looking for little green guys with antennas, but he's still looking for meaning. Mankind wonders about these big questions. And at the most basic level, if you really want to reduce it to the most basic level, there's a fork in the road, two lines of thinking. I was very proud of this picture. That's why I put it there. There's two roads. Notice that? That's why it goes so well with what I'm saying. Two roads of thinking that you can have. Let's look at the first one. The first one is the materialist viewpoint, that matter and space and time just happen to exist. Nobody really knows why they exist. They just did. Matter behaving in certain fixed ways that we may never comprehend happened as a fluke to produce complex thinking creatures like you and I. It was just a random occurrence that took place. Pure chance, space and time came into existence. By pure chance, matter appeared. And by pure chance, matter brought about evolved thinking creatures like you and I. This is the materialist viewpoint. Now contrast that with the other road. The, re the religious view. Now, notice I'm not saying the Christian view because it's not explicitly Christian. This has been a viewpoint that's been shared by multiple religions throughout world history, and that is that behind the universe, there is a mind, and it is a conscious mind. It's a mind that has purposes, a mind that prefers one thing over another, that this mind is actually uh, one that made the universe, and it, it did it for reasons we may never know, but at least one of those reasons was to create thinking creatures like you and I. Now, Christians are not forced to believe that all other religions are completely wrong. And that's a big misconception. The immediate thing that the atheist says about the Christian, what's the big name that they have for Christians? You close-minded, narrow-minded punks. All you believe, you're right, everybody else is wrong, case closed, and they're all going to hell. And they love to portray Christians as these closed-minded bigots. But the truth is that Christians are not forced into a position where they have to believe that every religion throughout the history of mankind has been 100% utterly wrong about these big questions of life. Christians can and do recognize that even the weirdest religions that exist have some basic hint of truth when it comes to this idea of a moral law or a conscious mind behind the universe. Now, Clearly, Christians believe where Christianity and these other religions come into conflict that Christianity is right and the other religions are wrong. There's no question about that. But I want you to think of it this way. You do a, mathematic formula, a mathematical formula. You can get an answer that isn't right, but it's pretty close to being right. I remember taking the AP physics test when I was in high school. Uh, I took it with a bunch of my friends after taking AP physics, and on the day of the test completely froze up. I remembered one formula, F equals MA. That's all I could remember. I plugged it into every single question, even when it didn't belong, F equals MA. I started throwing numbers in there. I got the test back, and the graders had literally written on it, we are now dumber for having read your answers. All right? <laughs> this, is, this is what it was like when I took this test. Now, I got, I got a terrible grade on the test. My friends got a better grade than me. They didn't get the right answers, though. Why? What happened? The graders looked at it and said, well, they're progressing down the right path. They just made an error here or an error there. But this answer is more right than this one over here. Christians can understand the same principle about grasping the moral law. Some religions get the concept that there is a right and wrong that you and I are expected to be held accountable to. They just don't quite have it right as to who that moral authority is. Now, I want you to do something. Contrast that with the atheist. Interestingly, the atheist doesn't have this, uh, this ability. The atheist is forced to believe that every religious person throughout the history of mankind, every single religious being that has ever existed has been 100% completely wrong about these big questions of life. You want to talk about narrow-minded. 
You want to talk about closed-minded, don't talk to me about Christians. Let's talk about the atheist that believes that they, this small minority, is absolutely right and every religious person throughout mankind is absolutely wrong. But we're talking about Christianity. So what do Christians believe? In order to see if the evidence points in Christianity's direction, we got to understand what they believe. Uh, when the last time I was here, it's been like three years ago, I, I, I gave a sermon and I kind of illustrated this concept to you. I want you to imagine that we're in a dark room and we're just stumbling around in the darkness and all of a sudden we bump into something. I don't know what it is, but I feel it and it's got legs and it's got a, it's got a seat on it. Well, it's a stool or it's a chair. Now, I may not have any idea what else is going on in this room, but I know one thing. I am in the chair. And now that I have this fixed chair in the room, I can map out everything else. I know that four steps this way, there's a giant pit. And I know that seven steps this way, there's a keyboard or whatever it happens to be. I can map out the whole room in pitch black because I have a fixed point. Now, what happens if I pick up this fixed point that is a lot heavier than I thought that it was going to be? Um, what happens if I picked up my fixed point and I start walking around and say, well, I know where I am. I'm in the chair. Now, obviously, I'm hoping you're picking up on the fact that that's not going to work. I can't map anything out if I'm carrying my fixed point around with me. There's two things about a fixed point of reference. Number one, it has to be separate from you. It has to be separate from you, and it can't move. My foot does not serve as a fixed point of reference because hopefully it goes wherever I go, all right? Secondly, it can't move. The moment that stool becomes part of my consciousness, becomes part of my reality or my personality, it is no longer a fixed point of reference because the thing moves wherever I go. And this is exactly the problem that we have in cultures and civilizations throughout the history of mankind. And it's the exact reason that when Paul is at the Areopagus in Acts chapter 17, he addresses and lays the fundamentals of the Christian worldview. You want to know what a Christian believes? Flip to Acts 17. This is what Paul says. By the way, when he's at the Areopagus, he's talking to a bunch of Greeks. These are not people who have been to Sunday school. They know nothing about the Christian faith, all right? They, the Jews, they knew the, 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 the Old Testament and the prophecies and all of this. They, they were familiar with it, and Paul was very comfortable there. Here's Paul talking to a bunch of people that have no idea what a Christian is, is, is basing their belief system on, and I think it's wonderful because here is the basics of the Christian faith. Paul starts off in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it. Stop right there. First thing that Paul addresses just happens to be the first thing that we addressed this morning. The most fundamental question. How did we get here? God is the origin of all things. Before all things, God. And after all things, God. Alpha and Omega. He is the beginning, the starting point for everything. Again, all men wonder about these things. There's a search for meaning that all men have. We want to know the answers to it. And Paul says, principle number one of the Christian faith, God is the origin of all things. And then he goes on, and he says, is the Lord of heaven and earth. Now, this is where everybody starts having problems. Because if he's the Lord of heaven and earth, that means he rules over heaven and earth. That there is a right and a wrong. There's a standard of accountability. There's a good and a bad there's an answer key to that AP physics test. And that answer key to that AP physics test is the biblical God. I can look at your answers and I can say, your answers are wrong. I can look at these answers and say, these answers are right. Why? Because I have the answer key, the Lord of heaven and earth. He is the ultimate moral standard to our universe. This is a big problem for the humanist. If you listen to the humanists, they will tell you things like, uh, oh, we ought to support and feed the, the homeless and care for the abandoned children. They call for all of this good to be done and all of this evil to be eradicated. But if you drive them to their presuppositions, they have no standard, they have no answer key by which they can say, there's good about this and there's bad about this. It's completely uh, your opinion. It's completely whatever you want to make it. Paul is saying it's not like that. There is an ultimate standard in the universe. There is a fixed right and wrong. 
That's what a Christian believes, that God is the moral standard. He's the origin. He's the moral standard over all things. And then he says this. He does not live in temples built by hands, and he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. This is the concept that a Christian believes God is self-existent and self-defining. He does not need you to give your opinions of what he should be, and he's going to morph himself to match whatever you want him to be. Remember when he was talking to Moses? He said, I am that I am, not I'm the great I am whatever you want me to be. God does not ask you your opinion of him and then change himself to simply please you. He's not here to please you. He's here to be pleased by you and worshipped by you. That is the God of Christianity. Again, I'll say it. Bring the kids around. Listen closely. He is not here to please you. He is here to be pleased by you and worshipped by you. This is the God of Christianity. If you ever talk to somebody that's into the New Age movement, they will inevitably ask you the question, and I've been asked this question, what's your definition of God? And I've told you before, if you remember three years ago, that that's still that desire in me to you know, rip the shirt off and become super Christian and start giving them the word of life and telling them everything there is to know and they need to know about the gospel message, it completely clouds my vision of what the answer to this is, the simple reality, the point. You don't define God, and I don't define God. It is impossible for a mortal, finite human being to comprehend, to understand, and to give an exact accounting of the, the, the absolute principles of the infinite, the eternal, the almighty God. If man could describe or define God, I just spit, luckily no one was sitting here, if, if, I, if, if man could do that, man would be God. If man could explain and, and, under, and understand everything there is to know about the secrets of God, man would, in essence, be God. You see, these Greeks, these Greeks would start from the ground up. They would, they would go and they would say, let's build our own God today. And they get a piece of rock. And they would decide the attributes of God that they wanted. They wanted him to be strong, so they'd chisel muscles on their piece of rock. They want him to be fertile, so they'd chisel sex organs on the piece of rock. They want him to be all-knowing, so they'd chisel eyeballs on the piece of rock. And they'd wheel the rock out, good-looking piece of rock, and they'd bow down and start worshiping it. Now, we think that that's crazy. Why? Because between the two of them, who created whom? They created their God. What are they worshiping? They're worshiping themselves, a projection of their own personality. They have decided what attributes they want to worship. They've created it, and then they've worshiped it. Now, don't shake your heads, though, my friends. This is exactly what Christians do today. How many times do you hear Christians saying, well, the God that I serve wouldn't have a problem with homosexuality. The God that I worship wouldn't have a problem with abortion. The God that I serve wouldn't have a problem with pornography. You see, folks, we create the attributes of God that we want to worship. We don't rely on the absolute truth of God's word. We decide what attributes we want. We lean on our own understanding, and that's what we worship. Paul is saying that is not Christianity. That isn't the concept of right and wrong, good and bad. God is self-defining. He goes on, From one man he made every nation of men and determined the time set for them to live in the exact place where they should live. This is what gives Christians the weird idea that human life is sacred, that human life should be protected, that life is valuable. Why? Because there is intrinsic value. Your life is valuable, not because of anything that you can do, not because of how high you can jump or how athletic you are, not because you belong with other people, not because other people accept you. Your life is valuable because you were made in the image of the infinite, the eternal, the almighty God. That is why life is valuable. Why do Christians oppose euthanasia? Because life has intrinsic value. Why do Christians uh, uh, oppose doctor-assisted suicide? Because life has value. Why do Christians oppose abortion and infanticide? Because every human life has value. 
That's what Paul is teaching about the Christian worldview. This is a basic understanding of Christianity. Now, contrast that with what the socialists teach, that we're all part of the great engine. We all serve society. We do what we can do to serve everybody else. Uh, I don't know a lot. Uh, I've told you this before about engines. I am missing the male testosterone chip that makes me really dig cars, all right? Uh, if you've ever watched the show Frasier, um, my wife and I watch this, and uh, Niles and Frasier, when their car breaks down, they're worried about popping the hood because they're afraid it's going to void the warranty. That's me, all right? This is, this is how I am in, in respect to an automobile. All right, I don't know anything about cars, but I know this one point, and that is a piston goes up and down. That's all I know, but the piston, because I've seen it on the commercials, because you have to oil it so it goes up and down really smooth, and it doesn't have viscosity and thermal breakdown, all right? But anyway, so you've got this, this piston, and it's going up and down all the time, up and down. What happens if that piston breaks its connecting rod and blows out? It's not doing what it's supposed to do anymore. Well, psh, throw that thing away. Get a new one. And they charge you $900 because it's gold-plated or something, all right? This is, this is what happens when you break an engine piece. Is this not exactly how the socialists teach us to treat human life? If a certain part doesn't fit into the machine anymore, if it's not doing what we thought it was supposed to do, if it doesn't function in the way that it can serve the rest of us, it's not valuable. Do you remember Terry Schiavo? I mean, she's not doing what she's supposed to do. She's not serving the rest of us. Why? She has to be fed by a machine. So her life isn't as valuable. Let's get rid of it. It's a, it's a burden on society. A Christian responds and says, there's intrinsic value to humanity. These are amazing principles of the Christian faith. That God's the origin, the moral authority. He's self-existent and self-defining. That there's intrinsic value because man is made in the image of God. That's why he's above, above and beyond any other creature that was created. And then this one blows me away. Paul says, so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him, though he is not far from each one of us. This same infinite, eternal God that you saw this morning said, let there be light, and there was light. This omniscient, unbelievably powerful God wants to know you personally. I, I mean, that just blows me away. I mean, I just, I, I don't even know what to say to that. That the God of the universe desires personal, a personal relationship with me, that he's knowable, that I can have communion with him, that I can talk to him. Unbelievable point here, that he is desirous of knowing each one of us. What kind of a God is this? This isn't the God of Islam, who would just as soon wipe you off the face of the earth and look at you. This isn't the new age idea of God that's just some impersonal force that sits out there buzzing all day. This, this isn't the deist idea of God where God's not involved in mankind, where he just wound everything up and walked off. This God, this God wants to know us. This is what Christians believe. Now, what's the immediate atheist objection? You've heard it before. The immediate objection is, well, if there's a loving God in charge, why is there cruelty and injustice in the universe? If there's a loving God in charge, there wouldn't be cruelty and there wouldn't be injustice. I want to point something out. We could start to answer this question, and we will. But I want you to grasp the fact that no matter what you say, it's not going to make sense to the atheist. They will never comprehend it because in their mind, it is illogical that a truly loving moral authority would allow cruelty and injustice in the universe. It just doesn't make sense. But can we pause for just one second and ask a very important question? Where did the atheists get the notion of cruel and unjust? Where did they get that idea? How do you know what cruelty and injustice are? Well, how do you know? My friends, you don't know that a line is crooked unless you've seen a straight line. If you have nothing to compare it to, you have no way of knowing that a line is crooked until you've seen a straight line. In the same way, the atheist has no way of knowing what cruelty is, what injustice is, unless they know that there exists the exact opposite. There is no way you can look at someone's behavior and say, that's cruel and that's unjust, unless there's 
an AP physics answer key by which you can say, I'm sorry, your answers don't add up. This isn't right. You see, this is a major stumbling block for the atheist. The fact of the matter is, if the universe has no meaning, we should never be able to figure out that the universe has no meaning. The fact that we can tells us there's an answer key that exists. The fact that you know what cruelty is and you know what injustice is tells you there's some sort of standard that exists out there that we're all aware of whether we like it or not. It's an insurmountable problem for the atheist. The concept of natural law, moral law, moral authority, depending on what you may call it, it's the same principle, this concept that there is an absolute right and wrong that exists for all people in all times at all places. Now, a huge point that I have to acknowledge to you right away, justification for the natural law is not going to come from science. You can't do it. We addressed a scientific question earlier about which way the evidence points with regard to the origin of the universe. This is not a question for science. You can never prove scientifically that there is a natural law. It's impossible. Why? Science observes. It runs experiments. It looks at things that exist, but the question of why anything is here, or if there's something that exists beyond or, or behind that something, that's not a question for science. It's a question for philosophy, but it's not a question for science. If there is a mind behind the universe, it's going to have to reveal it some, itself some way other than science. It, it can't be proven by observable means. Now, you say, well, that's hopeless. We can never prove it. Then we're going to go around and around until kingdom come because we're never going to be able to, to, to have any justification for our belief. Hold on one second. You would be right if there wasn't one little thing that stands in the way of that. There's one little thing that can set all of this on its ear. There's one thing that we know more about than that which we can just observe. There's one thing that we can tell and, and have, what's the word, uh, inside information about beyond that which we just observe. You know what that one thing is? It's you and me. We don't just observe men. We are men. And we understand as men and women, when I say men, it's the generic term, all right? Uh, we understand as men that we're under a moral law, and we didn't create it. We don't know where it came from, and we can't get around it. We know that it's there. That should tell us something. You see, if Martians were watching us, if they existed out there with their little green antennas and Sagan hasn't found them yet, and, and, and they're existing out there and they're watching us, they would never know we're under a, a natural law, a moral law. Why? Because they would see what we do. But you and I know what we should do. You see, you and I can know and have further proof of a, of a moral law beyond just observation. We rely on our inside knowledge to understand this idea of natural law. To illustrate this to you, I want to ask you a question. But in order to ask you the question, I have to take you back to a crisp September morning in 2001.
person that it would take to see something like that and not answer that question 100% invariably unquestionably yes the actions that were undertaken by those 19 men were nothing but unequivocally wrong and even those that would make the argument that no no given their own personal truth that was okay go up and punch those people in the face literally go up and punch them in the face what what are they going to do they're going to slap an assault charge on you why because you punching them in the face in an unprovoked way is what It's wrong. You see, my friends, whether or not we wish to admit it when it stands in our own way of of personal satisfaction and gratification, there is right and wrong that exists, and we know it. And you don't have to take the most dramatic ways to prove it. We all understand it every single day that there's a right and a wrong that exists. We understand that there are undeniable truths of the natural law that we can't, even if we want to, get around. Absolute truths that, first of all, they're self-evident to most people. Most people everywhere have a firm grasp, no matter what culture they live in, of these absolute truths. Now, they may suppress it when it stands in the way of what they want to do, but that doesn't change the fact that it exists. That absolute truth is discovered. It's not determined. You and I don't make it up for ourselves. If we make it up for ourselves, then there is no truth, because I can do whatever I want to do, and you do whatever you want to do, and there is no answer key. It's discovered, not determined. And that just like the physical universe... There are laws that govern our moral universe, and when they're violated, there are consequences that follow. 
These are the undeniable realities of the natural law, and yet every single one of them, there's objections by the atheist. Which way does the evidence point is my question. First of all, absolute moral truths are self-evident to most people. The atheist will say, hold on a second, Peter, look around. Open your eyes. There's bad behavior everywhere. If all people know the natural law, then there wouldn't be bad behavior, Peter. The very fact that people do bad things means that there is no natural law that we all understand right from wrong. First of all, this ignores the reality that the natural law tells us what ought to be done, not necessarily what is done. There's a big difference between the two. Cultural norms can't dictate right and wrong. Stop and think about that. Nowadays, premarital sex is a lot more common. Does that mean it's more right today than it was back then? Or uh, there's more rape today than there used to be? But does that mean that rape is more right today than it used to be? No. Just because something happens doesn't mean that something is right or appropriate. And this objection of the atheist completely denies that reality. It also ignores the reality that people are going to willingly disobey the moral law. You know this whether you want to admit it or not. I could call you up and put you on this stool and eventually, if I could drive you to the point of tears, you would acknowledge that there was at least one point in your life where you knew what the right thing to do was, but you didn't do it. You went the other direction. You see, Paul even writes this. The great Christian says, why is it that the things that I want to do, I don't do? And the things I don't want to do, I so often do. Paul's acknowledging the same reality. He was super Christian. I want you to stop and think about this. As a teacher, I've seen some unbelievable excuses for why somebody's cheating. We know cheating's wrong. Uh, Well, my brother got his head caught in the microwave. We spent the evening in the hospital, so I didn't have a chance to study, so I was cheating. All right, this is, uh, it's, it's ludicrous, but they're trying to rationalize. Or somebody who steals from the office. Well, if they paid me what I was worth, I wouldn't have to do this. But I'm just making things even. I'm making things right because they underpay me here. Or, or how about when you're cruel to somebody? Well, I know it wasn't necessarily nice, but they deserved it. They brought it on themselves. Can I tell you something? When you start rationalizing your behavior, you are acknowledging that there is an absolute truth. You are acknowledging there is a moral truth that exists and you're violating it and you're trying to find a way to dance around it. Rationalization that people and justification for these behaviors prove to us that that right and wrong actually exist. Another objection, well, Peter, as we evolve, our moral absolutes change. I've heard this one before. Uh, In fact, uh, not that long ago on the radio, somebody called and said, Peter, I don't believe moral truth exists because as we've evolved as a society, uh, our understanding of what's absolute has changed. I said, really give me an example. The one that they used was this. Well, we used to burn witches. We killed them because we thought that they were evil and causing all of this problem in society. We don't burn witches anymore. Our absolute values have changed. Really? Have they? No. What has changed is the perception that witches are casting spells and causing a lot of problems in our society. What has not changed is the absolute moral truth that when somebody is doing bad things in your society, you punish them for doing bad things in your society. The absolute moral truth is not. Situational perception may change, but the absolute principle has remained the same. Or how about this one? This is the big argument, multiculturalism. Well, different cultures have different moral standards. You go to other places and they have different standards than here. Therefore, there can't be an absolute natural law that exists for all people, all places, because different cultures have different standards. Really give me an example of that. Well, this is one that I've heard. Do you know, Peter, that in East Asia, it's immoral to eat beef? That's why they don't have uh, McDonald's that flourish in India because uh, you, I don't know if you're familiar with why, but this is a predominantly Hindu area and Hindus believe in reincarnation. And if you're a really good human being, you might be fortunate enough to come back as a cow. I'm not making that up, all right? This is, this is the way it is. And so they don't eat beef because you might be eating grandma if you eat beef, all right? And they don't think that that's 
that's a good idea. It is immoral to eat beef because you might be chowing down on, on, on Grammy. Okay, this is, this is what they try to avoid. By the way, maybe this explains it. When I was, uh, some of you remember my brother Andrew, uh, probably uh, even better than me. Um, but when we, would, when we would go to visit my grandparents, when we lived in Kansas, we would drive to visit my grandparents up in Greentown, Indiana, which is near Kokomo. And uh, when you're driving through Kansas, there's not a lot to see. I mean, there's, there's, there's no rest stops, there's nothing, and you'd have to go to the bathroom. So whenever we would go to the bathroom, we would pull over the side of the road and go out in the field. Andrew would rather have his bladder explode than go to the bathroom in the field. And do you know why? This is how much of a freak my brother is, all right? You know why? Because as he put it, the cows might be watching me. I'm not kidding, all right? He was petrified that the cows... So maybe Andrew was ahead of the game, and if Grandma's out there in the field as a cow, maybe that's why he was doing all of this. But this is the big argument. In East Asia, they don't eat beef because Grandma's in there. Different moral standards, Peter. An atheist point to this. It's a different moral standard between cultures. Is it? Hold on a second. Um, The moral principle that it's wrong to eat Grandma has stayed the complete same. All right, we don't believe that it's right to eat grandma here in this culture. We just have a different perception of where her soul resides. All right, we believe that her soul resides in heaven or in hell. They believe that it resides in a heifer. But what hasn't changed is the reality that it's wrong to eat grandma. That moral principle has stayed the same. You see, civilization, civilizations throughout history have always understood good versus evil, even when they haven't practiced it. The great Christian thinker, C.S. Lewis, wrote this. Think of a country where people were admired for running away in battle, or where a man felt proud of double-crossing all the people who had been kindest to him. You might just as well try to imagine a country where two and two made five. You can't think of a civilization where those type of attributes were actually uh, 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 approved of or people honored those type of attributes. Paul goes further and explains that's because God has written upon the heart of the Jew and the Gentile, the believer and the unbeliever. Why? He says, so that men are without excuse. Even if you don't claim the Christian faith, you still know appropriate from inappropriate behavior. Why? Because there's a natural law. Paul explains because God has written it upon the heart of the Jew and the Gentile. Yes, different cultural characteristics exist. There's no question about that. But the underlying values remain the same. Lewis says, Men have differed in regard to what people you ought to be unselfish to, whether it was only your own family or your fellow countrymen or everyone. But they have always agreed that you shouldn't put yourself first. Selfishness has never been admired. Why? Why in the world? That, that, that goes against our very instincts, self-preservation. Why do people run into burning buildings to save others? The most natural instinct is self-preservation, is it not? So why do people repress that to go and try to save others? What is it about us that tells us that there's good and that there's right in the universe and we go and we follow something like that? There's a story that appeared in the, in the local newspapers in Kokomo and in Indianapolis and made the national news. A guy from Kokomo who works at a, at a local plant there, uh, they were coming back from spring break and there was a horrific a- accident on 465. This guy risked his life to go back into the burning van seven times to drag out family people, members of the family, kids that were burning in the car. Why would somebody do that if there wasn't a right and a wrong? Why would somebody do that if he didn't know that that is an appropriate, that is a good behavior? It doesn't make sense. Is there any country in the world where rape is a virtue or, or where compassion is an evil? No. Why are those things honored? Why, why do we look at them and say this is good and this is bad? Because there's an answer key. There is a right and a wrong and a standard that exists. Every 
culture has a basic sense of right and wrong. And even ancient non-biblical scholars have recognized this. If God wrote it on the, part, on the heart of the Jew and the Gentile, then folks, even non-biblical people would recognize it. Sort of like uh, this guy, the Stoics. They believed in moral behavior standards long before Jesus ever walked the earth. Plato believed in absolutes and in, in the idea of right and wrong. Heraclitus, who was before Socrates, believed in logos, or what that, that means is unchanging reason. These people believed and understood there's something about us that declares right and wrong that we just have. Case in point, the atheist will love to say this, moral law doesn't exist and therefore all moral judgments are wrong. Don't tell me what I'm doing is wrong because there's no moral law. I can do what I want to do and you have no right to tell me differently. Christians hear this all the time. But what are they in essence saying? They're in essence saying it's wrong to make moral judgments. It's wrong to make moral judgments. That very sentence is a moral judgment by telling me what I'm doing is wrong. There is no truth except for the truth that says there is no truth. This is their, honestly their position. Do me a favor. The next time somebody says to you, there is no truth, ask them the question, is that true? Boing, it happens again, all right? There's no way to answer that question. What standard did they make that judgment by? In other words, in an effort to reject the moral law, what you see over and over, the atheist affirms the moral law by attempting to reject it. They simply can't help themselves. As I found out last November in an on-air debate with then-president of American Atheist, Ellen Johnson. Now, when you say you, you push for the ideals of atheism or the, the standards, the, is it fair to say that, that atheism is, is a religion? You have morals and standards that you seek to advance, a belief system. Is, is that an appropriate term in your estimation? No, we don't have morals or standards or a belief system. You know, it's, 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 yeah, ethics are relative. Of course. There, it's not, nothing is all black and white, and that's a good thing, because life is not black and white. Well, what we have to be careful of is that we don't misinterpret the difference between moral truth and changing relativistic circumstances. For instance, uh, the, I, I would encourage you to try to point out a society where running away in battle is looked at as, a, as a, uh, an honorable thing, or, or beating someone is assault and battery is looked at as an honorable thing. There is a moral standard that exists well, across civilizations. Where in Saudi Arabia they beat the women. And that's a Muslim country. They beat the women. Right, and you think that's wrong? Of course it's wrong. Okay. But that's religion, and that's a religion that says that's okay. It, it appears as though you have a moral standard by which you can tell those people what they're doing is wrong. And I'm an atheist. R right. In the matter of about a minute and a half, she told me there was no moral truth. There was no right and wrong. And a minute later, she's telling me, well, it's wrong to beat women. By what standard do you make that judgment? The atheist can't help themselves. They know that there's a right and a wrong, and they can't get away from it. C.S. Lewis explained it this way. The moment you say that one set of moral ideas can be better than another, or it's better to not beat women than to beat women, you are, in essence, measuring them both by a standard, saying that one of them conforms to that standard more nearly than the other. That answer key. And the action of not beating women conforms more closely to the yes answer than beating women does. But the standard that measures the two things is different from either. You are, in fact, comparing them both with some real morality, admitting that there is such a thing as a real right, independent of what people think. And some people's ideas get nearer to that real right than others. Or put it this way, if your moral ideas can be truer and those of the Nazis less true, there must be something, some real morality, for them to be true about. 
You see, this is the concept that the atheist doesn't grasp, or if they do, they try to avoid. Absolute truth is discovered. It's not determined. We don't make it up for ourselves. We've already seen, we've already established the reality that moral law exists. And if there is a right and a wrong, if there is an answer key, it's not something that you and I can make up. I can't use F equals MA on every single question and just claim that my answers are right because there actually is a right that exists. And it's not something I make up for myself. If absolutes exist, they're not a matter of our opinion. They exist outside of us as a fixed point of reference, that same concept. Man doesn't determine his own moral law because if he does, there is no moral law. It's all just a matter of man's opinions. Everything is relative and a matter of preference. So, simply put, if we can't determine our own truth, then we must, the only other choice is to discover it. Now, sometimes that's easy. It's what our founding fathers referred to as self-evident truth. It doesn't take a genius to figure out it's wrong to murder somebody. That's pretty cut and dry. But sometimes it's not. When you have a young girl who's 11, 12 years old, and she was raped by her dad, and she's become pregnant. Well, is abortion wrong in that instance? Or, or, or you have two people who really love each other and care about each other, and they're homosexuals. Why is it that they should be prevented from being married? For a lot of people, that's a difficult question, especially when it's a family member. It is a difficult question. Let me tell you something. We shouldn't be surprised that we have these difficult scenarios. Truth isn't always abundantly clear. Does that mean, is there something I can do to help that? Is it, is it nothing that I can do? All right, maybe if I just stand here and don't move my head. I'm just going to turn slowly to the side. First Corinthians tells us, for now we see through a glass darkly, but then we'll see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. For now we see through a glass darkly. Friends, truth isn't always easy to see. Right and wrong isn't always easy to see, but I want you to pick up on something. Though we see through the glass darkly, we still see through the glass. Truth is still knowable. Truth is still discernible, and it's still applicable. We have to look for it. We have to find it. Now, are there ways that can help us? Is, is there some sort of test that we can have to try to figure out what's right and wrong in those tough situations and scenarios? This is not an exhaustive list, but yes, there are things that we can look at. First of all, if there's an increase in disease and death, you can pretty much know that there's a moral law that's being violated somewhere. I look at the lifestyle choice of homosexuality. Homosexuality encourages the rapid spread of serious, debilitating, sexually transmitted diseases. That's not something I'm making up. Go to the CDC if you want to and look at the statistics for yourself. Now, I've had people say to me, Peter, but there are a lot more heterosexuals with these STDs than homosexuals. First of all, I would dispute that. But second of all, it's a misleading, it's a red herring that they're throwing out. Look at the percentages of the two communities and the, and the percentages of those communities that carry these serious diseases. You're talking about less than 6 or 7% of the heterosexual population with the AIDS virus compared to upwards of 70% of the homosexual population with AIDS. Is there not something being said to us by these numbers? Let me tell you something I'm sick and tired of, and this is me getting on my soapbox a little. Please forgive me. I'm sick and tired of Christians being called homophobes. I'm sick and tired of those of us who are courageous and love homosexuals enough to stand up and say, your behavior is wrong and it's killing you. I'm tired of us being labeled the ones who hate homosexuals. I'll tell you who hates homosexuals. Those who hate homosexuals are those who see those numbers, who know those numbers, sometimes even know the eternal consequences of that lifestyle and say to those people, embrace who you are. Embrace who you believe that you want to be. Those are the people that hate homosexuals who have no more care for them than to simply encourage them to embrace a lifestyle that will leave them dead at half of the age of the general population. Those are your homophobes. Let me, let me say something else about that too. 
Christians need to be actively involved in this and showing the love of Christ. And if all we ever do is, is rip on homosexuals and say how awful the lifestyle is without expressing the love of Christ, then we're doing more damage to the kingdom than we are helping the kingdom. It is a sinful choice, just like sexual promiscuity for heterosexuals, just like lying and compulsive gambling. These are all sins, my friends, and God looks at them equally. And if Christians are somehow segregating a certain population, a sector of the population because it is more taboo than something else, we're not helping the cause of Christ in the least. If we, if we truly love individuals as we're called to love, then we're going to stand firm on this type of thing. If your kid runs out into the middle of an intersection, a busy street, do you just tell them, well, kids will be kids. Go for it. That's who you are. No. You pull them back and you spank their bottoms and you say, that is wrong and you don't do that. My friends, we have to be willing to take a stand in our culture for right and wrong because if we don't, nobody's going to. What is it to love homosexuals if it's not teaching them that their behavior violates the moral law? Secondly, another test. Ignoring the intrinsic worth of humanity will always guarantee that you're going to violate the moral law. People that have souls must always be treated as of higher importance than those things without souls. Seems like a given, isn't it? Let me show you a passage from Al Gore's book, Earth in the Balance. It seems an easy choice. Sacrifice the tree for a life until one learns that three trees must be destroyed for each patient treated. Suddenly we must confront some tough questions. How important are the medical needs of future generations? Now I I want to explain something to you. There's a way that you can interpret that passage of Al Gore's book, and I want to make sure that I'm not misrepresenting it. Al Gore was not suggesting that he believed a tree was more valuable than a human being. That's not what he was saying. What he was saying is, we have some really serious illnesses in this country, and so we have to figure out which ones are more serious, and we utilize our resources and the trees that we have to save those more serious illnesses than the less serious illnesses. The problem is that a teaching like this is grasped onto by the humanist and they don't understand the context and they begin believing and you already see it in our culture take a look at some of the organizations that exist out there that will pass laws to forbid shipping a lobster that's pregnant in its third trimester but have no problem with the practice of abortion uh, to me that's funny but it's not funny it's funny, but it's sick that we have actually gotten to this part of our culture. When we've seen, we've seen this over and over, when people start respecting human beings only for what they can do for society, you're starting to see a violation of the moral law. How does our society treat life? If a certain part doesn't fit into the machine anymore, we just throw it away, we get rid of it, or we cancel the order before it ever gets here. Human babies in a trash can. This is where we are. When you abandon the intrinsic worth of humanity, your culture is no longer upholding moral principles. Look at this one. Ambiguity doesn't excuse passivity. You're very impressed with my vocabulary, I can tell. I had to use a thesaurus for that just to impress you. Ambiguity means uh, that you don't really know where to draw the line. You're not really sure which way to go on this one, but that doesn't include, not, that doesn't uh, excuse not drawing a line anywhere. You see, we may not know what the drinking age should be. Some people say 28. Some people say 15. That doesn't mean you don't draw the line somewhere. We may not know what the penalty for murderers and rapists should be. Should it be the death penalty or should it be life in prison? Doesn't mean you don't draw the line somewhere. You don't throw the line out simply because there's ambiguity about where it should be drawn. And look at this one. Reactions are better guides for us than our actions. This is huge. You want to understand the moral law? You want to know if your action's about ready to violate the moral law? Don't think about what you want to do. Think about what you would do if it was done to you. What would your reaction be if you're on the other side of that? You see, at times, our selfish desires, if you're like me, our selfish desires cause us to want to do things that we shouldn't do. But we still expect others to do right to us, do we not? 
We still expect to be treated the right way. We may desire to do evil, but we react against evil that's done to us. The young girl who's considering having an abortion because it's her senior year of high school and she doesn't want to lose that senior year and all the fun that's going to come along with it. It, To her, if you just ask her what she wants to do, moral truth is going to be pretty skewed. But take her and ask her to put herself in the womb and judge from a reaction standpoint. And all of a sudden, the perspective completely changes. Reactions are better guides for us when we talk about moral law than our actions. Traditional morality and religious principle offer strong guides. You were reading ahead. I already saw you. The eyes were moving. I don't like that. Traditional morality and religious principle. We shouldn't scare those off in our culture. What are we doing in our culture today? We're extricating God from the public square. Every chance we get, we remove God from another part of society. We tell him to stay in his little box called the church. We'll come see him on Sunday, but every other day of the week, that's ours, and that's the way we're going to live. That's a problem. Why? Religious principle is good for a society. Take what Dennis Prager, who's a Jewish talk radio host, said on his program one day. Imagine it's midnight, and you're walking in a very bad area of the city. You're alone in a dark alley, and all of a sudden, you notice that ten men are walking towards you. Would you or would you not be relieved to know that they had just attended a Bible study. I don't care who you are, my friends. You can be the most rabid atheist in the world, but when you see them carrying something in their hands coming towards you in a dark alley, you're going to be relieved if you see the words Holy Bible there on the book in their hands. There is no question about that. Why? Why would people be be relieved in that situation? Because we know religious principle teaches moral restraint. And moral restraint is good for any culture. It is good for any society. Religious principles should be embraced. That's what our founding fathers taught, not shunned from our culture. Truth number three then, last one. There are consequences to violating natural law. Consider the laws of nature like gravity. Uh, We know 100% of the time that little green leaf is going to fall down into that pond. We know that the law of gravity works. You can't just uh, imagine declaring one day, I don't believe in the law of gravity. You go up to the Empire State Building and just say, I'm not really into the law of gravity today and walk off the edge of the building. I'll tell you what, the law of gravity doesn't really give a rip if you believe in it or not. It still exists and it's going to act on you. And there are consequences for violating physical laws of the universe. It stands to reason then that the same giver of the physical laws of the universe has given us moral laws to the universe. And if you violate those moral laws, similarly, there are going to be consequences for any society, any person, any family, any culture that starts violating those principles that exist. The removal of the moral lawgiver removes moral law, which means we have no accountability. If you take the answer key away, you can do whatever you want to do. Russian novelist Fyodor, and I never can say his last name, Dostoevsky. Okay, I'll just say it like that. He said it this way. If God does not exist, then everything is permitted. If God does did I make her mad? Is she storming out? I think I did. Yeah, that's a shame. (laughs) She's not going to come back now. All right, anyway, if God does not exist, then everything is permitted. If there's no moral authority, you can do whatever you want to do. The Russian novelist realized this. German atheist philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche understood it too when he proclaimed God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we, the murderers of all murderers, comfort ourselves? Must we not ourselves become gods simply to seem worthy of it? Somebody's got to call the shots. And if God's no longer here, it's going to have to be us. Let me tell you, that's exactly what Satan intended in the Garden of Eden. Is it not? When he first introduced this concept. When he said to Eve, For God knows in the day you eat thereof, your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods. When she ate the fruit, 
not the apple that I said earlier, all right? Forgive me for that. I just made it up. It might have been an orange. I don't know, all right? When, when Eve ate the fruit, this is what Satan was saying. Be God of your own little universe. Be God. That's why I'm so glad Mark Cameron's sitting in the, in the crowd with his little pad, and he's starting to write down everything that I say. And as soon as I see that pad come out, I just want to chuck this, re, this, this remote at him. But anyway, all right, back to what I was saying. Focus in, Peter. Here we go. Everybody here. Good, all right? This same concept, Satan is introducing. You can be your own God, Eve, if you just disobey. If you just do what God told you not to do, you'll be as wise as him. And this is exactly what we have in our culture today. Why would Satan desire this? Why would the devil want this? Because he knows once we destroy the moral lawgiver, then we've destroyed the moral law and we do whatever we want to do. And what, what comes as a consequence of that? We destroy ourselves. Every single time it happens. Frederick Nietzsche understood it. The, this great atheist philosopher, even though he proclaimed God was dead, shortly before his death, he predicted that the 20th century, the 1900s, would be the most murderous in all of human history. It would be the most murderous because there's no moral authority anymore. Men have gotten beyond moral authority. There's no need for moral self-restraint. Let me ask you, was he correct? Well, stop and think about it for a second. Remember Mao Zedong in China? This guy, through re-education, destroyed the notion of any, any moral accountability. He proclaimed himself just this is determined by whoever's standing on the right side of the gun. If I've got the gun, I make up right and wrong. Good to have you back. If you have the gun, then you make up right and wrong. All right? This is what Mao taught, and as a consequence, 65 million people died at his command. At his command, because there was no moral authority over Mao. How about Adolf Hitler? We know about him. He applied Darwinian principles at the social level, the idea of social Darwinism. I'm not saying that Darwin caused Hitler. Please don't misinterpret that. Believing in the need for ethnic cleansing in a superior race, 17 million people were exterminated at his command. Why? Because there was no moral authority over Adolf Hitler. How about Joseph Stalin in, in the Soviet Union? His paranoia, his brutal tactics made him the most infamous mass murderer of all time. 50, or 38 million people died directly, directly caused by Yosef uh, Stalin. Pol Pot, Pol Pot, this same guy, embraced Mao's policy of continuous revolution. He tried to purify Cambodia, and as a result of having no moral authority over his actions, 1.7 million people died because of his purification. Vladimir Lenin in the former Soviet Union, he gave life to Karl Marx's communist ravings, and he ushered in this working-class revolution. And because there was no authority higher than the state, 20 million people died because of him. How about Benito Mussolini? He allied himself with Hitler. He started the fascist party in this iron fisted rule and because there was no authority over Mussolini 300,000 people died as a result Kim Il-sung in North Korea he was a disciple of the Marxist-Leninist philosophy he, he started repressing dissent and everything else ushered in a tyranny and as a result 1.6 million people died was Nietzsche right friends but we're not done what about these people the United States Supreme Court. Don't think we can slip out of this one, my friends. I know we're the land of the free and the home of the brave, but in 1973, we removed the concept of moral authority for the sake of convenience. For the sake of what was more convenient for an individual, we removed any notion that there's a moral authority that we're accountable to. And as a result, over 50 million Americans, over 50 million Americans, that's rivaling Mao's numbers, friends, have been executed, have been slaughtered and sacrificed on the altar of convenience. When you destroy the concept of a moral authority, man dies. When a belief in God dies, man dies. We've seen it 100% of the time it's been tried. Our society before 1973 met a different fate because our beliefs were different. The Declaration of Independence clearly said the laws of nature and nature's God entitle us to certain things. There's an answer key. 
and our Declaration of Independence proclaimed what it was. American respect for natural law has protected it from the consequences that came to other civilizations. That's why Washington said that reason and experience forbid us to believe that we're going to remain moral without religious principle. It's why uh, Benjamin Rush, one of the signers of the Declaration, said the only foundation for a useful education in a republic is to be laid in religion. Without this, there can be no virtue. People are not going to be virtuous or moral if there's no religious principle at the heart of it. That's why John Adams said, we have no government armed with power, capable of contending with human passions unbridled by religion and morality. In other words, what does that mean? You can't have enough police to stop crime. You can't have enough police to follow everybody around. They can get there and they can punish crime once it's happened, but they can't stop it. What's the only way as a free society it's going to last if people feel a basic moral restraint themselves? And that comes from religion and morality. And our government is wholly inadequate, Adam said, to the government of any other. It won't work for people who are not moral and religious. But as our culture has abandoned moral law, as we've gotten away from this concept of right and wrong, and we've pursued this postmodern relativistic thought that you make up what's right for you and I make up what's right for me, we find our civilization torn free of its moorings as well. You remember these guys, Harrison Klebold? walking into Columbine High School and opening fire. Nobody bothered to pay attention because I don't think we wanted to know. We, we talked about wanting to know why these things happened, but nobody paid attention to what was written in their journals. Natural selection. Effers should be shot. We don't care. We don't care that they're wearing t-shirts praising the idea of natural selection. We don't even begin to think maybe there's a connection between some of these thoughts that these people had. Or how about this lady over here, Melissa Drexler. Remember her? She was, this is her deposition. She was 18 years old. She delivered the child into the toilet, cut the umbilical cord with the sharp edge of a sanitary napkin dispenser, strangled the baby, placed it in a plastic bag, threw it in the trash can, and went back out to the dance. This was the girl that delivered the baby at the prom. Uh, we sit here and we shake our heads. How in the world can we, how can this happen? How can this occur? We respond to these events. We're shocked and outraged. I remember uh, Katie Couric interviewing Al Gore shortly after the Columbine incident happened. He was the vice president at the time. And they were sitting there wondering, how do these things happen? And Al Gore said, we have to try to understand what causes this type of behavior. Folks, you don't have to try to understand it. It's as plain as the nose on the end of your face. They're the logical outworking of, of a philosophy that teaches there is no right and wrong. And when you preach that to kids over and over and over again, don't be surprised when they start acting out the consequences of it. Ideas matter. The simple question is, why should kids act right when we teach them that there is no right? I'll say it again. Why should kids act right when we go out of our way to teach them there is no right and no wrong? C.S. Lewis put it this way. In a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and yet bid them to be fruitful. You see, this is why the atheistic foundation of moral relativism that teaches there is no moral truth is a horrible basis, not just for your personal life, not just for the life of your family, but for the life of your civilization as well. Your God doesn't exist. Mm, let me see. I hear a voice, and the voice is telling me to do this. There is no God. It's, our laws have to, be, have to come from human beings. 
And when our laws come from human beings, such as Chairman Mao in China, who said justice is determined by the person standing on the right side of the gun, we have massive bloodshed on an unimaginable scale. It's a horrible basis upon which the to build your civilization. Now let me finish. Beings, let me let like me finish. Please let me finish. In America, we did things differently. Our founding fathers said you have your gift of life, your freedom, because it's given from a higher authority. And your group undermines that. And my question is this. I, I, to me, it should concern all of us, Christians or not, how do I, how because do we when we... That? It's, hold on, it's hold on. There aren't hold any on. gods that give you anything, and nobody can take away something that's imaginary. Because that when we use our freedom... Independence, so we don't undermine that. The Declaration of Independence declares that we have those precious rights because they were endowed, a, an act of the will, an act of God, not a deist and God that wandered off. How does organization undermine that? We, I'm going to tell you, if you'll let me finish, we, as a society, get those rights from the biblical God, from the Creator God. And I simply ask you, you what happens? What happens? You, no you ask me a question, ma'am, and then you don't let me finish. Me how you get rights from an imaginary being. Where is that, like, written down somewhere? Like, your, your right to... Uh, your, uh, uh, could I please finish what you asked me originally? Your group undermines the Declaration of Independence in the sense that our freedom comes from God. And if we use our freedom to deny the existence of God, Ms. Johnson, I ask you, what happens to that freedom? So if we use our freedom to deny the existence of God, so freedom of speech, which is what that is, right? Which is what so what is. I use my freedom of speech to say there isn't any God. That's what you don't like? Are you using my freedom of speech? You are using your freedoms to deny the existence of the source of your freedoms. If there is and a God, what difference does it make what I say? Do you think your big God can't defend itself? God can completely defend God himself. I say it Here's the problem, ma'am. <laughs> the problem is this. Just like there are physical laws that govern the universe, for instance, you wouldn't walk off the end of the Empire State Building and say, well, I don't believe in gravity today because gravity doesn't care if you believe in it or not. There are consequences for violating physical laws. There are consequences for civilizations when they violate moral laws. So and that is that inherently what your society is attempting to do. There will be consequences? You're going to have to ask that again because I was trying to finish my thought. So you're saying that, um, I saying that there isn't any God, violates some moral law, and there will be a consequence? My, what I am telling you is that there are moral consequences to a civilization denying the existence of a moral authority, and we have seen it play out through history time and time again. Let, oh me, God let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Because, we're a, because we use our brains and say, we want to think, we think this way. Look, you know, if your God wants to try and bully me into believing in it, he doesn't. bring it on. He you doesn't. Know, he you doesn't. Can threaten me with hell and damnation. I'm not threatening you. I'm not threatening you saying, at all. You're saying if I refuse to believe, if I use my intellectual integrity, I will be punished. America will be punished. So you better think my way. You better believe there's a God, or there will be consequences. That's what you're saying. You are trying to put words in my mouth to That's suggest what, you said, right? what I told you was I don't. If you want to be an atheist, you have every right to be an atheist. What we're talking about is taking the fundamental principles of atheism and using them as a root of society and our culture. That is what yields horrific consequences for mankind, and it has throughout the ages. Oh, our founding fathers. Fathers, our we're founding not, fathers we're not recognized doing anything that causes horrific consequences you, in society. We can start we are looking upholding the Constitution of the United States of America. 
let's talk about 60 million people who had died at the hands of a brutal regime in, in the former Soviet Union under Stalin. Let's talk about the 40 million okay, that died under Chairman thing, Mao. Peter, where, where is that caused by atheism? Where is the direct link? Where does atheism espouse the need to do that? You are not, you're not listening to what I'm saying. I'm listening to you, Peter. Atheism does not command people to go out and kill one another. There you go. Okay. Now, you have to listen to me. You said you were listening to me. Atheism doesn't give a direct command to go kill people. But what atheism lacks is any moral authority to tell people there is a standard of behavior that you are expected to stand up to and to be held accountable oh, to. And oh, when you lack on. that moral you know, standard... You're making this up as you go. <laughs> You're all over the place. I'm we all talked about there are laws. And if a society like, you know... And laws should Soviet be made by whoever's got a gun? There's a military regime. That's not good. But nothing good comes from supernatural Hold on. Systems. How can you say it's you not good? You are so deluded. Okay, I, I'm... You live in your own little fantasy world of fantasy gods and fantasy ideas that there's it's hard to have a conversation because you it can is. say whatever you want it, it, it is very hard to have a conversation I, I i i'm not understanding where you're coming from when you say that i'm i'm deluded and living in a fantasy world i'm giving you real life examples of when we employed the principles of atheism and the societies and the consequences that, what is that the they principle faced of atheism what? What is the principle of atheism? What principle of atheism? The principles of atheism are that you can make up truth. You can make up right that and wrong. That is not atheism. You can, it is that secular is humanism. I think she liked me. I'm not, not entirely sure, but I think she did. Folks, um, I don't have to define atheism as a certain belief system, and she doesn't have to. One of the leading atheists out there, and I'll take dealing with Ellen Johnson any day before I'll take dealing with this guy. Uh, his name is Richard Dawkins, and he is a very, very smart individual. He's written a lot of books. Some of you maybe have read some of his books. He gave the best definition of atheism I, has, I have ever seen. This, this is what he said. Humans have always wondered about the meaning of life. Life has no purpose uh, other purpose, no higher purpose than to perpetuate the survival of DNA. Life has no design, no purpose, no evil and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. That's it. That's atheism in the best way I could ever define it. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. That's a, that's a hopeless way to live your life, and you and I understand that to be true, but it is an absolute, uh, destructive, deadly way to base a civilization. And that's the point I was trying to make to Miss Johnson. But again, don't take my word for it. I want you to hear the words of one of the most notorious serial killers in American history. His name was Jeffrey Dahmer. And shortly before Jeffrey Dahmer died, he granted an interview to MSNBC. This interview is one of the most telling and one of the most convicting and convincing interviews that should, should move you beyond words that I personally have ever seen. This is what Dahmer had to say. Your dad has wondered about all kinds of things, from the medication that your mom was on during her pregnancy, to the fact that you were exposed to violent arguments in the home from an early age and continuing, to the possibility that he might have passed on some genetic propensity for obsession or violent behavior. Does any of that ring true to you? I can see why he'd wonder about those things, but uh, as far as I'm concerned, they're all excuses because I didn't feel accountable to anybody. I didn't feel that I had to 
to uh, face what I had done ever. And uh, so you, you have, there comes a point where a person has to, has to be accountable for what he's done. Can't go, can't go around making excuses, uh, blaming other people or other things. So I, I alone am the one who's responsible for what's happened. Let me ask, when did you first feel that, that everyone is accountable for their actions? Well, thanks to you for, for sending uh, that uh, creation science uh, material. Because I always, I always believe the, uh, the lie that uh, evolution is truth, the theory of evolution is truth, that we all just came from uh, the slime and uh, when, we, when we died, you know, that was it. There was nothing. So it, the whole theory cheapens life and uh, started reading books about how, that show how evolution is, is just a complete lie. There's, there's, no, there's no basis in science to, uh, to uphold it. And I've come to, since come to believe that uh, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the true creator of uh, the heavens and the earth. It just didn't just happen. And uh, I have accepted him as my Lord and Savior. And I believe that I, as, long, as well as everyone else, will be accountable to him. Growing up, did you feel that you were accountable to your dad or to your mom as the authority yes, figure in the house? Yes, I did. I mean, they, they didn't let me uh, run wild. They were... They disciplined me, and uh, so I felt accountable to them. But afterwards, after I left the home, that's that's when I uh, started wanting to uh, sort of create my own little world where I could be the one who had the complete control, where I didn't have to uh, bow to anyone else's demands, and uh, I just took it way too far. At that period of time, I had drifted away from a belief in a supreme being. And I never, as a result, passed along the feeling that we are all accountable in the end. He owns us. And that basic concept is very fundamental to all of us. You feel that the absence, at least for a while, of a strong religious faith and yes. belief... For some years. ...may have prevented you from instilling some of that in Jeff. That's right. Is that how you feel? Yes, I think I had a big, uh, big part to do, to do with it. I mean, uh, if you don't... If a person doesn't think that there, there is a God to be accountable to, then, then what's, what's the point of, of trying to modify your behavior to keep it within acceptable ranges. Uh, that's how I thought anyway. And uh, I've since come to believe that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is truly God, uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're the only true God. Ellen Johnson denies it. Richard Dawkins admits it. And Jeffrey Dahmer proves it. Without God, Everything's permissible. And when a belief in God dies, man dies. Can you imagine the reunions in heaven? Shortly after that interview, Jeffrey Dahmer was murdered by his fellow prisoners. Can you imagine the reunions that will take place in heaven when Jeffrey Dahmer meets 
some of the people that he killed. It's amazing. An amazing God that we serve, is it not? We've looked for the, for the morning session and the evening session. What does the evidence say about the, the design of the universe? And we've seen that the evidence supports the Christian idea of a designer. We've looked tonight at whether or not there's a moral authority to the universe, and we've found that the evidence points in the direction of the Christian belief that there is a moral accountability to our universe. But we don't know who that designer, and we don't know who that moral authority is quite yet. I hope you'll be back next Sunday morning, and we'll look at the truth and the evidence for this guy named Jesus of Nazareth. I look forward to it. Thanks for tonight. Let's say a word of prayer before we leave. Father God, thank you so much for tonight. And we thank you for the testimony of those that we would never think we would be witness to by. And, and I just, I praise you for uh, never giving up on us, for following us through to the end of our lives, Lord, and giving us every opportunity to find our way. And God, when, when we grasp that, when we understand that, when we see that truth, Lord, we know that there are so many that still need it. And we're your ambassadors. Inspire in us a desire to share your truth and to reach out to anybody and everybody we can while there's still time and help them find the truth that will set them free. We praise you for all you do for us every day and for who you are, for we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We pray this in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And everyone said, Amen. I'll see you next Sunday. Thanks for being here. Thanks for visiting. We hope you've been encouraged. Please feel free to visit us online at clcchurch.com.